Well, hi. Welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Trump. We take a deep look at the news of the day and the current administration and other things of general interest. Joining me today is Heather MacDonald. We're going to talk about her amazing piece in City Journal, how identity politics is harming the sciences. When do you hear this? Also, we will have our friend Joel Farkas back on the show for another discussion on, you know what it is, California. Here we come. We'll also talk a little bit about trade. But first, uh, a few thoughts. Uh, I got a couple of emails I want to go over with you from you all, but I'll do that in a couple minutes. Just a short rant today, as we call it. Claude, you with me? Okay, yes, I'm with you. You've got a short rant, huh? Short rant, long okay. rant, medium rant. You're with me, right? I'm with you. I'm with you all the way through all the various lengths of the rant. Because I don't know. My answer is, I don't know. Okay. Uh, people say, is there going to be a meeting with Kim Jong-un? I don't know. I think so. Yes, I think so. Will it be productive? I don't know. Mm. Right. Okay. What's going on in the Justice Department? I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm seeing the theme here. But I think that there's a big IG Inspector General report coming out soon. This week. And the latest, of course, is the president has uh, met with Rod Rosenstein and said, you know, I want action here. Um, I want to know what went on. I want to know if there was a spy in my campaign. New York Times said, well, there was an informant, but not a spy. Hmm. I don't know what that distinction yeah, what the difference is. is there. Okay. Yeah. But uh, we'll we'll find out. Congress is eager to get documents. I'm just, I'm just not going to pronounce. I'll just say there's plenty there to look into. And I think the momentum is starting to really shift in Trump's direction. Opinion polls suggest it is. And uh, but I, I'm I'm going to wait. I want to wait and see what we find out. So I hope uh, the audience will excuse my modesty there. But um, don't have to fill three hours with my opinions anymore. So uh, <laughs> I'm not, not going to offer them. Mm-hmm. I will offer some opinions on the horrible shooting in Santa Fe. Right. This one, of course, doesn't uh, lend itself easily to the facile solution crowd of either, you know, well, he had all this stuff on his site and it was predictable and he'd been in trouble with the law and da, da, da. he had some stuff, stuff on his site and he wore a trench coat and had a stupid t-shirt. I'm not going to say his name. But uh, there wasn't this long internet trail of horribles, nor was there any trouble with authorities. Um, and then to the other, you know, kind of facile explanation, gun control, you know, no semi-automatic or automatic weapon, no AR-15, no AK-47, you know, handgun to shotgun. Mm-hmm. You're not going to outlaw those, believe me, no matter what. Secretary of Education under Obama, Arne Duncan, who's a guy I know and uh, like, I, I used to admire less now since he's serving Obama, but he said... Well, maybe we should just keep. Did you see this call? He said, maybe we should just keep everybody out of school till they pass good gun control laws. Oh, okay, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, let's wait two years and just let students' brains go on hold. You know, so uh, that doesn't make any sense. I will say this: Why is it always at a school? I've been talking to my wife about it. She's writing a piece on it, and of course, she's in the schools all the time. Mm-hmm. First of all, she does point to D.C., where, as you know, you have to go through a metal metal detector every time you walk in. No shootings in D.C. schools, um, and uh, you know it's interesting. It's also interesting to me that you see in the community, in the African American community, you see a lot of individual killings, but you don't see mass shootings. Uh, you don't see you don't see African American kids going into schools and doing this by the dozen. Do you? No, no, you don't. Right. I, I don't. I don't. I have no explanation for this. It's just <laughs> I don't know why. But I mean, that's different from the, you know, the metal detectors which they have in D.C. Right. But 
um, and I think it's a good idea. There have not been any school shootings in D.C. in the school, correct? Correct. Uh, I, I won't hazard a guess on the other thing. I mean, there have been plenty of killings in the in the community in Chicago and D.C. of black-on-black killings, but not massive shootings in the school. I don't know. I think it's this, for a lot of kids, it's the center of their universe. Mm-hmm. And it's where their their loves, their hates, their animosities, their fears, their insecurities, their um, jealousies, their antagonisms. That, that pure thing is very, very powerful for good and for ill. And so, you know, there was a story about this guy that he'd been turned down by this girl. That was the first person he shot or one of the first people he shot. So you go to school to wreak vengeance in the place where you're regarded, not regarded. Self-esteem is low bullied it's the cauldron it's the it's the hothouse it's the greenhouse where a lot of kids work out there you know their their identities so much of your identity and your self-regard when you're a teenager comes from your peers that when things don't work out then you think of them as your enemy mortal enemy i am afraid we're gonna have more of this because you know we crossed the line i mean we crossed the line with columbine and now we've had just you know a bunch here in the last years and um, people now, you know, people would have never thought of it as an option. Now it's thought of as an option. You've heard me say this in other contexts. The actual proves the possible. Gee, I wonder if someone might, you know, hey, people do it. Yeah, well, I should do it. It's not so hard to make that suggestion in your own mind now. Right. If you're a troubled kid, because it's been done so often. But I, I don't know. I, you know. I do think there's a role in the media. There's so much attention to it. But you can't ask the media to ignore it. They're not going to ignore it. It's news. And I watch it. I watch it. I look at the faces of these kids and wonder, you know, you know, does the, does the devil himself know the heart of man? I mean, can you peer into that soul? You remember our, our days and years talking to Dr. Wellner, a forensic psychiatrist, right. remember? Yep. yep. But nobody can really do this. You can see some signs, but what are you going to do? You know, every kid who wears a stupid T-shirt... <laughs> How many kids were stupid? How many times have you been in an airplane where kids got on with skull crossbones? Yeah, and no, he Knives and yeah. revolvers. And, you know, unnerves you a little bit. You're sitting there with your wife, you know. You don't mm-hmm. want them sitting near you. But turn them into police? I don't I don't think so. What do you do? Uh, it's interesting because, like you said, sometimes there are these trails on social media and other communications where you see that someone might be on edge, but then you get these situations where, you know, where they're not. But I think you hit on, uh, or at least we discussed today, something that I hadn't necessarily heard a lot when you said on schools. And we talked about just, like you said, schools being the middle of their universe at this point. And, you know, it seems like at times the younger you are, every single thing you face in high school, at ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, it's almost as if you feel as that that's it for life. This is the end of, yeah. of everything. Oh, she broke up with me. That's it. I'll the never end of find the world, it. Right. Yeah. And, and they go through these things and you compound that with self-image and self-esteem and bullying and things like that. Sometimes these kids, they go to school, they deal with that stuff. They go home only to wake up tomorrow and deal with it all over again. They have problems, Very good. Very you good. know, uh, uh, processing it. Um, and that's one Very of the good. things I know we talked about it before. One of the things that make Mrs. Bennett's Best Friends Foundation program so great is that she that. talks about peer support and like if you see someone being bullying you, you put your arm around them talk to them let them know that you're there for them uh that could make the difference between you know I- exploding and and being able to process what you're going through in school also uh, hotline numbers if you're being yep. bullied call relationship violence you mm-hmm. see that i mean I, I we watched the program there at roosevelt high school mrs bennett did one on may 3rd wasn't it yes yeah. yes may 3rd and um 
bestfriendsfoundation.org, right? Yes, friendsfoundation.org. But uh, it was great. It was a terrific program. And Secretary Carson, Ben Carson spoke. And kids were there. And, mm-hmm. um, she's writing a piece. We'll, we'll put a link up to it when it's out about you can talk to kids about some of this stuff and maybe, my God, prevent some of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, we're not going to close down schools. But you know what, what's really sad is to hear some of these kids talk about now apparently one girl according to her mother the girl who turned down this boy and was shot early on had actually spoken about a, a shooting at school did you see that yeah she said there may be a shooting at school and if there is and i get shot i will haunt that person for the rest of my life mm. this possibility of a shooting at school is now becoming a palpable reality for a lot of kids, right. is in the sense they think that this could happen to them. Well, there was one girl who was on the news said that. She said, I was seeing in the news, I just knew one day it would happen in our school, and now this is the day. So that um, that unnerves at a very deep level. Yeah. Incapacitates at a very deep level. Makes you fearful. Greatest, most advanced, wealthiest country in the world. Every convenience known to man. Mm-hmm. Fearful of your life when you go to school. What have we done here? We done this. Adults done this. Have boomers done this? Have children of boomers done this? I mean, I just, I, I don't, I don't have an easy answer except yeah. that you know we need the guardrails. I don't think this happens at religious schools. I know. I mean, I know a kid who broke into one and killed a bunch of people in Pennsylvania, but I don't think it does happen at religious schools, does it? I don't know. I don't Heard about so. this at Catholic schools or or these Christian academies? I don't think so. I'm not faulting the public schools here. It's just that it's a fact that there's a dearth of hesitation on the whole question of character development, values, instruction. Mrs. Bennett's trying to fill it in the public schools, but you know, you heard, you probably heard there from the podium at that day at Roosevelt, a couple of people mentioned God. Afterwards, she was worried that someone had turned her in. Yeah, turn them right. in. No, you're, you're right. right. Yep, yep. Because you're not supposed to do that. You know, a lot of people think. When when God was banished and prayer was banished, that had something to do with it. Yeah, I was talking. I was talking to uh, my grandmother actually a few days ago, and that's exactly what she said. You know, would what? you go out there for food? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was there for food. Yes, yeah, but you were. Uh, but she says, you know what? You know, she says, I, I don't want to sound crazy, but when they took prayers out of schools, we were doomed. That's yeah. what she said. No, a lot of people believe mm-hmm. that. Maybe something to it. Those are my thoughts for the day. We'll have more. A lot I don't know today. And I hope that doesn't disappoint you. A couple of quick uh, emails, Claude. Uh, just read the first part of a couple of them. Uh, sure. And so we have one from David. Uh, he says, <coughs> I think it's Locher or Lacher. Uh, he says, always enjoyed your viewpoints as uh, to the state of our nation and the president. Been listening to your podcast for the last six months and enjoy your commentary on Fox News. As a previous education secretary, your sense of where uh, we once were and where we are trending is of great concern. Uh, he uh, talked about the podcast where uh, we played uh excerpts of your conversation with uh, Secretary DeVos. Oh, yeah. Uh, He says his concern is that the U.S. uh, USA's ranking of 40th among the industrial nations is shocking to him. Uh, How come we don't hear more about that? Yeah, well, Um, turn me on. I'm a nonstop record on that. (laughs) I just keep going around the turntable. Record turntable. How old am I? Anyway. (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, it's ter- it's awful. Give me one that's a little disagreeable. You got one there at the bottom, I think. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we have a, a, an email. Uh, someone asking, when did you change your mind on open borders? Uh, if I remember, you were the main person who convinced Rush Limbaugh to oppose Prop <laughs> 187. 
in California. If anybody persuades Rush Limbaugh, I think it's Rush Limbaugh. I, but yeah, I was opposed to Prop 187. Um, and that's not open borders. That was about providing services to people who came in as seasonal workers. Um, the distinction I made, and people may or may not, this was, what, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. may or may not have um, accepted, is that these pe- folks were invited in. This was not people who broke in. These were people who were brought in, invited in, to pick the lettuce and so on, and uh, the artichokes in California. And um, once in, many decided to stay. Now, you know, they didn't have legal right to stay, but they were invited in. I think that's different from crashing in in the caravan. Situation's also changed in 20 years, dramatically. And so you got to take steps and measures now that maybe you didn't think you had to then. But, uh, no, I've, I've shifted some on this because circumstances change. I think you should change your mind when the facts change, or sometimes. When the facts change, see if you should change your mind. But uh, I thought that was a relevant fact at the time. Clear what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Me. yeah. All right. I think uh, we'll leave it there. Continue to write us, please, at uh, what address, Claude? Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. And let's give Mrs. Bennett's website another look. Uh, what is it? Your best friends foundation.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, it's time to welcome Heather MacDonald to the program. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and is a contributing editor of City Journal. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. How identity politics is harming the sciences. Okay, folks, buckle up. We'll put a link up to this article. Didn't Alan Bloom somewhere in the closing of the American mind, or maybe I just heard him in a panel say, if this attempt to politicize the university had started in the sciences, it would have gotten nowhere. Do you remember that? I don't, but, you know, that's been the wildly optimistic uh-huh. Uh, belief among many people that there was going to be an absolute barrier between what was happening in the humanities and the social sciences, which was total corruption and uh, the submerging of real learning to the specious narcissism of identity politics, there was a belief that that was not going to enter the hard sciences and that the grandeur of American knowledge in in science, biology, physics, and math would be untouched. Well, that proved to be a very naive hope. Uh, And the the same corrupting, ignorance-producing obsession with race and gender has now really engulfed uh, the hard sciences. Identity politics, you write, the beginning of this article, has engulfed the humanities and social sciences on American campuses. Now it is taking over the hard sciences. Then you cite a number of examples. And then you cite what's going on at some universities. Then you cite what the National Science Foundation is doing to promote this and what the National Institutes of Health are doing. I don't want to to get sidetracked, but the swamp is not yet cleared, I guess, huh? No, it just it's absolutely amazing. American taxpayer dollars are funding agencies that were created in the case of the National Science Foundation in 1950 during the Cold War to try and promote America's dominance in science. The National Science Foundation for decades now, I frankly, this was news to me when I researched this article. They actually have been uh, promoting the idea that you cannot do good science unless your lab has 50-50 males and females and a 
proportional representation of so-called underrepresented minorities, which is blacks and Hispanics, you, unless you have that, you will not be able to solve the mystery of dark matter. They've been doing this for a while, but it's gotten absolutely at hysteria levels uh, in the last, I don't know, decade or so. And they're pouring millions of dollars uh, into research that alleges that there is widespread discrimination in science labs against the most qualified scientists merely because those scientists happen to be female or black or Hispanic. This bill is a complete fiction. Every science lab wants the best possible thinkers. The people running it want to get the Nobel Prize. If they find somebody who is going to advance their research agenda, they are completely indifferent to that person's gender or race. Uh, and yet the, the NSF, the National Science Foundation, taxpayer-funded, is putting millions into hammering labs to hire by race and gender as opposed to scientific competence. They are now doing a half-million-dollar study of something called intersectionality. This is a phrase that is getting more and more attention belatedly from critics of the academy. Intersectionality is a phrase that is a product of the victimology sweepstakes, whereby there's a, a, a ruthless competition on university campuses for who's the top dog victim. And it turns out that if you can check off several boxes of victimhood, approved victimhood, so if you're not just black, but you're black and female, and you're not just black and female, but you're black, female, and trans, you are the alleged subject of intersectional bias, many, many different vectors of American hatred and racism coming at you. So the NSF is funding a, a study in intersectionality in STEM fields that is being run by two specialists in gender and sexuality studies. This but, is not hard science. No. But I'm not clear on something threshold. You said every science lab wants the best people. Is that true? I mean, is this just external pressure from the NSF or the NIH? Or as I read your article, it looks like some of these institutions are promoting it themselves with or without external pressure. You're absolutely right. They are. We have now sort of a split personality in some of the academic science departments. I have a friend who's an engineer uh, at University of California, San Diego. Right. And their dean, Short list, we're all females. Is this where you're going? That's where I wanted to go. Go ahead. Their dean hammers them to hire females. And regardless of, of merit, again, they want to be the best. But about, I would, he, he estimates that about half of his colleagues are actually on board with this gender crusade. The other half are appalled by it and, and think that it's a okay. drag on their scientific capacities, but there are now certainly the diversity bureaucracy in universities uh, is yeah, now sure, replicating sure. itself inside inside scientific departments to, to hammer this gender and race message. Let me get a couple examples out for the audience. 
hasn't had the benefit most of the audience of, uh, of reading this article. Mathematical problem solving is being de-emphasized in favor of more qualitative group projects. Of course, that group project thing is a guise for all sorts of problems, a, a similar related problems, but it's a, it's a way to, it's a way to hide individual differences, which they want to do. Uh, but qualitative group projects, what, what happened to quantitative? I mean, when you're <laughs> mathematic problem solving is quantitative, isn't it? Yeah, but that's, again, you're absolutely right. Uh, they are supposed to submerge any individual achievement to do these okay, group yeah. projects, okay. and they can't, they can't ask questions, but as a group, they can't come up with results, but as a group, as you say, it is a way to drag down the top in order to okay. Okay. Uh, try to lift up the bottom, which doesn't happen. Uh, and an oncologist at an Ivy League medical school who has a lab that is working on cancer treatments, he teaches also at his school, and an administrator in his, his school, basically a dean, said to him that his exam, which was on sort of the pharmacology of cancer drugs, was too fact-based. Too fact And he should write something that was less fact-based. Literally, this is what he said. Because, again, if you have a quantitative fact-based exam, given what yeah. we know about different... Uh, scientific capacities and different degrees of training, cultural background, family background, it's going to produce disparate results. And that is not acceptable. So we'd rather dumb down science education uh, rather than have any kind of inequality of result. This is uh, one that got me. Texas A&M, which is a bastion of uh, military uh, pride. Uh, more, Did you know more soldiers and officers come out of Texas A&M, I'm told, than Naval Academy, West Point, and Air Force Academy combined? Never knew that. I have been told that. I mean, it's a huge place for conservative. But $2 million went to them, to the Department of Aerospace Engineering, to remediate microaggressions and implicit biases in engineering classrooms. Now, you've written about microaggressions before, but is this, I know you cited a number of examples, are these isolated examples? Is this a, still a minority issue, or is this at most institutions? Is it? Oh, I, let me ask you this. Is it at MIT, Caltech? Oh, sure. Caltech may be relatively clear. It is, according to all of my science friends, it is the most committed to meritocracy. But remember, when Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard University, gave a private talk at a conference on and discussed the possible reasons why there is not 50-50 parity in the most advanced math and physics programs between males and females. And he said that there may be other reasons besides sexism among those different career predilections and the fact that it is demonstrably the case that at the highest range of math capacity as well as the lowest range of math cluelessness, males outnumber females. And an MIT biology professor, Nancy Hopkins, got up and had to flee the room because she said hearing Summers say this, she was about to throw up. And she then went on a crusade against Summers got him ultimately fired. Yeah. Uh, so MIT, 
which we all think of, again, as this bastion of science, uh, is harboring some of the most radical feminists. NSF intersectionality study at the American Association for the Advancement of Science found systematic anti-LGBTQ bias within STEM industry and academia, STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What would that look like? I don't know. know. It, I, I guess if it's the idea is that if somebody trans shows up who's, you know, a, a absolute whiz in intergalactic physics, that somehow he's not going to get hired, or she, or, or they, or the Z, or whatever the proper terminology is. Yeah, yeah. Again, it just, this, this narrative of pervasive racism ignores the fact that these institutions want to be the best, and I just don't believe in this current, our current environment, that people who present superior competitive qualifications are getting turned aside out of out of bias. Justice Holmes said once that intellectuals make fun of common people, ordinary people, for fads, but he said there are fads in the intellectual world as elsewhere. Is this a fad? Is this something that's coming but maybe it will go? This will pass? I mean, th- there's a kind of irreducibility to being able to count, right? I mean, to get it right. There was, I'm drawing my own experience here. This is a whole new thing for me, what you're writing about. But when I was Secretary of Education, did a lot of studies and saw that, you know, the math stuff where you were mostly being taught to estimate the answer and not get the right answer was not really very helpful, particularly if you were shooting for the moon. And that tended to pass away in most math books. But is this... Is this is this new and it growing, or is it peaked? Is it on its way out? Is it a fad? Well, you've written about it's... microaggressions before at UCLA, I think. Yes. And that was a couple of years ago I read that. Are they still doing that there, or general microaggressions, professors who say mer- things like meritocracy? There? They're doing it everywhere. I mean, okay. there's, there's hardly a campus where you don't have a, a cadre of students continuously claiming that they are the victims of microaggressions and you don't have every every campus basically has a set of diversity enforcers that are teaching students to look out on the world and see just a wall of bias against them to think of themselves as victims so microaggressions are getting bigger and bigger and I don't think that uh, I see no diminution of the the spread of identity politics you see it in silicon valley now you know the for-profit companies like google that fired a highly competent young computer engineer because he dared to challenge the feminist ideology there that said that google was discriminating against female engineers again not the case but google fired him and subsequently somebody fired filed a lawsuit against youtube and google saying that he had been fired because he objected to the fact that he was given a mandate to only interview females and underrepresented minorities for entry engineering jobs uh so not only is this 
completely entrenched in the universities, including in the STEM departments, but it is spreading into the uh, marketplace in the private sector. Now, you know, you could say, well, there's still going to be the core inside a company or inside a academic department that is doing unpoliticized science. Uh, and as you say, in order to make the bridge stand up, you have to learn the laws of physics and, and yeah. basic engineering skills. Yeah. On the other hand, we are diverting enormous amount of resources yeah. to this that could be going into basic research. And the pedagogy is changing. Every week I get a notice of a new webinar on leading inclusive STEM classrooms that is all about, again, group learning, uh, de-emphasize facts, and and slow things down. Meanwhile, China is fiercely driven by meritocracy. They don't give a damn about what the gender proportionality is there. They just want the very best engineers and chemists. Uh, And so, you know, we have a big advance over China, but eventually... If we keep dragging ourselves down, I think we're going to very much put our our advantage at risk. We're talking to Heather MacDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. We always learn from her. So it's widespread. It's pervasive. Now, what do we do about it? And let me frame it in particulars. I wrote a book called Is College Worth It? And I said, all depends. And I dealt with some of these issues in addition to sort of fraud and lying and the fact that, you know, we have $1.5 trillion in debt and people major in things where they can't get jobs. But I also find myself, Heather, excuse this is a long question, when I'm, when I'm, people ask me for advice, what I get asked most often is retail. People say, my child got into here, there, and the other place. Should they go? And I, I, I don't know. I, I was watching Tucker Carlson the other night, and Tucker said, was doing thing on higher ed, and said, you know, the hell with it. Just, you know, don't go. Just don't go. But if, if I'm talking to a parent who says, my kid just got into Stanford, and he wants to have, you know, a good life and productive life and make some money, it's hard not to say go, even though you know they're going to run into all this stuff. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? Well. If you're asked, and I'm sure you are asked. Yeah, I mean, my first instinct would be to say to the parent, work very closely with your child on looking at his course choices okay. and make sure that yeah. he is taking classes that at least at face value seem to be immersing him in the great works of human civilization. Now, that's not really a satisfactory answer because oftentimes a course may look innocuous and yet it harbors the usual whining uh, belief in ubiquitous racism and sexism. And it may also be that on closer examination, there aren't that many classes. I mean, you've, you've right. talked about right. in the past, Bill, it's very hard in many, many uh, history departments, whether it's the Ivy Leagues or a, yeah. a state school, to find any courses on constitutional history American or American history, history that, American isn't, history. Yeah. that right. isn't without some kind of victimology lens of oppression. 
So, though, the, though the boldness now and the confidence of these folks is such that there's more self-advertising, there's more truth in advertising. This is, of course, in transgender colonialism, you know. Um, I mean, they, they, they sort of want to get out there and say it. But, but yeah. you're right. I think, I think if I were close to a campus and could take a real look and, you know, and audit a couple of lectures, I could be able to guide pretty much any kid through a school with good courses. But at a distance, I think you're right. So what do you do? Um, without knowing what they're really, they're really doing at Stanford, you know, I looked at the return on investment. I know that's pretty crude. That's not why I wanted to go to college. I wanted to read all the great books right. and did. But, you know, on good conscience, turn down Stanford. I don't I don't think so. Turn down UCLA, turn down Texas A&M, turn down these places that are groveling for this money and getting this money and believing this garbage. It is so difficult. I mean, I, yeah. I sort of wish that, you know, maybe we start a homeschooling for college. Yeah, right. I was movement. just thinking that before I got on about asking you if you wanted to serve. But, you know, I, I would frankly... It's time to get them out of the house, though, really, Heather. That's, That's the problem with that. I mean, you know, they're they're staying too long anyway. So we'll have a dorm for homeschooled students. I, I don't right. know. I, you know, they're there are, one hears little stories about schools that are being started. I know one is being started down in South Carolina, Ralston College, that is starting out as an MA program, but it is absolutely so completely dedicated to uh, an extremely traditional, wonderful, humanistic yeah. Yeah. Uh, curriculum with very deep roots in medieval uh, scholasticism, right. actually. Right. Um, and, you know, of course, there's Hillsdale, but it's not enough to meet the demand. Uh, but as you say, if you have the opportunity for Stanford, and, you know, it's nauseating to acknowledge that there is, these schools have the branding mm-hmm. capacity. Mm-hmm. And, and I, too, okay. for me, yeah. college is simply an opportunity to learn, you know, the, yeah. the after effect of, Right. effect on income is, is less interesting, and certainly the networking was not a point, but for a lot of people, it's also the networking that that you're going to get. All right, let's go, at, let's go at it another way. Let's Occam's razor here. What can we do about NIH and NSF uh, funding, drain the swamp? Uh, can we get the House Freedom Caucus, uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, something to be done by government, in government, to stop this garbage? I don't see why not. I don't okay. see why okay. why the Trump White House cannot say these are. Uh, you know, I actually I don't know if they are more congressional agencies or executive agencies since Congress created uh, NSF. I don't know if it is the one that can set the rules as opposed to the White House, but somebody should be able okay. to go through and say, stop this nonsense 100%. It is ve- these programs are very clear. The head of the NSF uh, is a female. She is on board the whole diversity agenda. I don't see why you couldn't say, I want somebody to get up here and tell me explicitly that he or she has no interest in identity politics and is going to return this agency mm-hmm. to its founding mission, 
which was to promote science in a colorblind and genderblind manner. That is not what's happening now. That could end. They could. You could. These programs there are very identifiable. End them all. Okay. Okay. One of the few calls I made and letters I wrote um, was in support of a guy. I think you probably know him, David Galerner. Uh huh. You know, to be net, to be science advisor to the president. Because he's got a clear head. You know who David is. Yes, absolutely. You know? And that, that would have been a good idea. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened there. But this is this is just crazy. And you're saying this is pervasive. I mean, this is at all these places. Is it at all these places? So that back to our conversation with students, once they're there, I, I talk to conservative kids, you know, and meet them there meet their parents and they introduce me to their kids and they say oh yeah i read your stuff like your stuff and i'm sure you run into this and yeah we got we got our crazies but i avoid them and i you know mm-hmm. i take the real chemistry course mm-hmm. um i i sort of found appealing <laughs> since i had such a rough time with chemistry with that soft chemistry course you described the qualitative aspects of chemistry or how do you feel about chemistry mm-hmm. but um can't, can't students wisely counseled or wisdom of their own navigate a path yes if they're in the if they're in the hard sciences you know at, at some point social sciences are not going anywhere i mean right there's give up all hope right you enter here yeah i mean there's you have like social psychology which is just it's been from its yeah. origins but it's gotten even worse it's all just the study of prejudice at this point you know and and it needs prejudice to exist, so it is. There's no way it's ever going to give up on the idea that America is racist. Um, but but in the hard sciences, if you get through the intro courses and get into uh, obviously you know an advanced pre med education, you're you're still you will be getting. Uh, I think the the basics that you need. The question is what's happening around you, so that. Let me interrupt you, because you, yeah. you suggested in the article that they're they're tinkering, or more than tinkering, uh, overhauling the whole sort of GMAT and MCAT and GRE, right? So that those those boards that get you in or get you out with supposedly rigorous, requiring rigorous thinking may not require such so much. Well, yes, uh, there's been a recommendation by the American Astronomy Association to get rid of any requirement to take the graduate record exam in physics. The GREs are the gateways into graduate study, like the SATs are into college, and these are pretty advanced classes. And the reason is because they say the GREs in physics, females don't do as well as males, yeah. and and blacks and Hispanics don't do as well as whites and Asians. So they're just junking that requirement. Um, and what's happening with the medical school exams, the so-called MCATs, is that blacks are being admitted to medical schools with the lowest of all MCAT scores, scores that would be an automatic reject if a white or Asian student uh, approached a medical school with those scores. And so the blacks are coming in with extremely low qualifications. They end up at the bottom of their class in medical school because they've been brought into environments for which they're not prepared. And then what happens from then on in is that every 
residency program, every medical lab is under enormous pressure from the government to hire blacks for their research team, and they're told to overlook, you know, qualifications. And and so, you know, whites and Asians now are having to be even more qualified because there's fewer places for them because of the diversity yeah. quotas. Uh, so but, you get a, a bifurcated, a, a sort of a bifurcated world where if you're white and Asian, yes, you're going to be held to very high standards uh, because to hire at this point, like Google doesn't want to hire you if you're a white male. So you better be really, really good if you if you want to get a Google job. So the the white the white males and the Asian males are going to get better and better in these places because the competition is so fierce. But meanwhile, organizations are pushing themselves and with the help of the federal government uh, to admit people that would not otherwise be admitted just on the but, basis of race and gender. All right, all right but, but wait a second. I mean, if I'm, if I'm running Coke Industries, and I was talking to Charles Coke not long ago, and he said, I don't hire any of those Ivy Leaguers. I hire them from guys from Oklahoma and Kansas. And maybe this stuff hasn't penetrated so far. Or if I'm running General Dynamics, building submarines, or who's the guy who runs Tesla? What's his name? You know, uh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk and, and and launching rocket ships. I don't want affirmative action. I want you know people can hit the moon. You know when we try. I mean, well, Elon ma- ma- Musk is such a he's such a maverick that I'm I'm sure okay. that he does not he is not subject to this. But, but, but industry, big, bottom line, I mean, come on, at well, the end of the day, the bottom line, you're going to hire smart people, right? The well, smartest you can they get. Have, no? they, if, if it's a big corporation, they have a human resources department that has okay. been colonized by right. Africans. Yeah. As, you know, when, when the guy that was fired from Google, I, I mentioned earlier, James Damore, he's filed a, lo- a discrimination lawsuit against Google now and it's a fascinating read you can get it online he's got screenshots of the chat rooms uh, at, at Google it is, a, it is a mirror image of the university hatred towards white males but at one point on, a, on one of the chat rooms when this is coming up somebody who is in support of James Damore and his right to write a memo saying that our diversity programs are perhaps misguided, uh, said we need to stop this because HR is now simply an outpost of women's studies and black studies. And and so the HR departments in corporations now are are the source of identity politics, and they are putting enormous pressure on corporations to hire and promote by race and gender. So they're still going to hire some qualified people, but again, it's a drag on their competitiveness because they also have yeah. to hire and promote and compensate based on irrelevant qualifications of race and gender. All right, doesn't this? Uh, we need to wrap it up, but this has been great. Um, uh, a, this encourages China, obviously, um, you know, because they don't care about this stuff. They just care about how much you know. Second, um, I'll tell you a quick story about that. When I was secretary, a guy came to see me, a guy whose name you'll know, but I won't repeat, was representing uh, the so-called People's Republic, and he was very upset because he said they were losing graduate students to the U.S. who came over to study at Caltech and then defected. What could I do about it? He said, we're losing 25%. I said, I want them all. I want every single one of them, you know. 
um, to stay on 100% yeah. defection. So maybe we could take some of theirs while we're doing this other nonsense. Of course, that's an inefficient way to run a university or a company. But how about immigration based on talent and skill? I mean, it, it just seems stupid not to be educating our people in the right way. But that's that's another thing. And then and then the third thing, yeah, what you said, competition. Somebody, some startup, and some guy says, "Folks, we're going to hire by merit." Well, I don't know. Maybe they'll beat the competition if they do. Well, I talked to a mathematician uh, who graduated from the University of California at Berkeley, and he told me about a girl that was uh, not the top of her class at Berkeley, but was given a very prestigious National Science Foundation fellowship in math, uh, and she was unable to pass the qualifying exams at, in the Ph.D. program uh, for math. She was given three. This is something that happens like your first or your second year if you're in a yeah. uh, graduate program to say yeah. that you, can, you now can go forward. She She took them three, four times failed. They changed the rules to try and keep her and said, okay, you can't pass the qualifying exams, but if you can take an undergraduate math class and get an A+, we'll allow you to continue. Well, she couldn't. She got like a B plus or something, so they finally got rid of her, um, and she went up, ended up teaching elsewhere. But this guy, you know, is very competent in math, and he's now got a job in Silicon Valley at a small company, and he said nobody here gives a damn about these okay. ridiculous race and gender diversity okay. things. Okay. You know, it is by merit. So he's an example of exactly what you're talking about is one would hope that there would be firms that say, I can seize a competitive advantage okay. here by, by not wasting my money on this diversity stuff. But they are small, you know. Okay, small and now, small now. Will he get in trouble with California? Could be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, and certainly the press. There's the press now in, in its post-Me Too movement is just in total bean-counting mode, so that all you need to do to get a story on the front page of the New yeah. York Times is to survey a company and say, oh, there's not proportional females there. So that's right. always a risk. Okay. All right. Very frustrating. Um, we thank you. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and nobody shines more sunlight and light than you do on these things. And. Thank you very much, Heather MacDonald. Thank you. Wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so Thank much. you so much, Bill. All right, that's Heather MacDonald. I'll post a link to her piece on Facebook and Twitter. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's change direction. Let's welcome back to the program our good friend Joel Farkas. He's the director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, California. There it is. The Golden State, the place of our dreams, uh, the place that Americans went west in the 19th century looking to go to California. It would all come true. Has it all come true in California? It's come true for some uh, for some people, some very wealthy people. It's also the highest poverty rate in the United States, highest homelessness rate in the United States, and middle-class families are abandoning and leaving the state. Um, sure, it's come true for some some people, beautiful weather, uh, some beautiful places to live, but it's not, it's not a very good place if you're trying to uh, raise a family and uh, live the historical middle-class uh, life with, uh, with housing and 
raising your kids and you no know, it's 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 not it's terrible it's 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 failing it's a failing state for those for that group of people in the united states when you said highest uh, poverty rate welfare rate and, uh, this is rate not just numbers right i'm sure the numbers are the highest because it's the biggest state by far but the, this is rate a, as well right perfect clarification um yeah it's uh, the, the california is about 40 million people so yes a lot of people live there but it's not the quantity it's the rate it also has the distinction through one recent report from U.S. Uh, U.S. News of having the worst quality of life in the United States of all 50 states. And again, there's so many people that live in California that love it. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place for uh, for those who have means. But if you cannot afford, if you're having such a, a significant, if in many cases more than half of your your income going to housing, uh, some of the highest energy costs of any state in America um, uh, goes on the, the list goes on in terms of cost of living if you're if you're a family who is struggling to pay those expenses uh, the, the yeah. weather doesn't matter yeah. to you weather now, doesn't if, matter if you're uh, one of the uh, very rich we uh, were talking earlier about maybe 150 couple hundred thousand people who are very rich who live in California you pointed out more billionaires in California than any other state does their um, high income level and the fact that they can uh, you know pump a lot of money in is that does that drive up is that is that the cause is that why things are so tough for the middle class because you got this uh, cadre of very rich people People by buying stuff at higher rates, driving costs up. Is that what it is, or is it something else? It's something else. Uh, there's really two two things we can talk. What's so difficult for the middle class are many different items, which I'd like to address. But let me let me talk about the revenue sources that you just alluded to. Um, the state revenue, most of the state revenue, two thirds of all of taxation that comes into California comes from personal income taxes, and it comes from very wealthy people. Making Wait a minute, I want to pause on that. Two-thirds of the revenue that comes into California comes from personal income taxes. And, yeah, there's, per, and, there's, there's, and, there's corporate taxation, there's uh, sales tax, and, the, and, there's, and there's personal income tax. Of all those, those are the big three sources of revenue. Okay. Two-thirds okay. of all the revenue comes from income taxes. Okay. Uh, you know, we hear these phrases, tax the rich, the rich have the money, uh, they should pay their fair share. The top 1%. Should you know have pays a bunch and they should keep uh, they should pay more because they have means, um, but it's more important than that. If you're if you're running the state budget, you're also dependent and reliant upon this very wealthy group of people to pay such a large percentage of your of your of your revenue that you expect for your budget. Now that works when stock market is going up. It works when the economy. Is, is going up, but if there's a if there's a dip in the economy, if the stock market goes down, if there's a, a, a recession, if there's a lack of growth, all of those things that that are typical in a business in a cycle is going to affect the income from the, the the people that I'm talking about, and it will reduce dramatically the revenue to the state. Now. What, who, how many people make up this 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 group? This yeah, that pays? yeah right. I was just going to ask you that. It's a state of forty million people, but about a but California knows who they are. It's about one hundred and fifty thousand families in a state of forty million that make up more than fifty percent of the income tax collected by the state of California. Mm. Mm. 
That equates to about a third of California's entire budget, a third of it. Now, no matter what you do, whether you're a business, whether you're a, a government, whether you're a charity, anything, any endeavor that you that you engage in, you would never want such a large percentage of your expected revenue to be reliant upon such a few people. Okay. And Standard & Poor's has, recent, has recently and repeatedly uh, noted the vulnerability uh, for the state because the state doesn't have any reserves. They don't have any money socked away for, for slowdowns or recessions. None. Virtually none. Things might look good right now, but uh, it's not. It cannot be sustained. And furthermore, like I mentioned earlier, uh, things aren't very good if you're a middle class family, if you're someone who is poor, yeah. if you're homeless, or if you're in poverty. What's yeah. happening is people who used to be middle class are now being driven to those other other categories. Just to clarify, or they're leaving, or they're leaving the state. Well, just a clarification before they, we talk about them leaving the state or being uh, unable to afford the state. These rich people, you talked about dips in the stock market and other things. And so, uh, you know, it's an unreliable source of revenue in the long run, these 150,000 very wealthy people. But aren't some of them leaving the state as well? Uh, they, they, they could very well be with the, with the new tax, uh, tax changes. That's, yeah. that's a possibility. But even if, even if those tax changes did not get into effect, which you read about, can't deduct state income tax and things like that, it's still, California still would be vulnerable to the volatile nature of that okay. source of revenue. Let's know, talk about the middle class. What made it? Was it policy, economy, or what was it that made it so hard for the middle class to live? What's middle class family income now? What is it, 70000 Is that is that about it? If you if, if yes, if you look at all fifty states in the United States, you would think there'd be a huge, huge difference between middle in, middle class income, but it's generally between seventy, seventy three, seventy four thousand dollars per year throughout all fifty states. And California is no different. The middle class income is about seventy three thousand dollars. Okay. One major difference for the, the struggles of, of middle-class people in California is if you look at the top 15 largest cities in the United States, top 15, right? five of the largest, which have the highest costs, highest cost of living for middle-class, four of them are in California. One of them is New York City. But the other four, San Diego, Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Mm-hmm. Be- those cities, the cost of living is between ninety-five thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand per year. So, middle-class family makes seventy-three thousand. Cost of living is ninety-five to one hundred and fifty thousand. You do not need an economics degree to understand you're losing each and every year in this state. Well, then, and, but, but it's a big state with a lot of cities and communities. So, I go somewhere else, right, with my seventy-three. Uh, you should, yes. But I mean, you can you go somewhere else in the state where the, where the cost well, of living isn't so high? I go to San Luis Obispo. I go to uh, the uh, to Fresno. Uh, some opportunities, but there's there's a few few problems with that because um, certainly the coasts are the most expensive. And okay. you asked, uh, you know, what's causing this? How come I can't afford to live there? Well. Full, of, of all the coastal cities, there's many causes. Some are state-related, some are local and municipal-related. 
virtually, uh, I would say probably 70% of every coastal city, every jurisdiction in California has passed some sort of restrictive zoning to preclude new housing development to be built in those cities. Okay. So why is the, why the, why do the costs go up? You don't have any more housing being built or very little housing being built. Okay. And if you're, okay. so you're not going to move to the coast because almost every coastal city has something that they have passed that says, don't live here. Uh, and and they, you know, the mayors and their city council members will say, I know you like our zip code, but we're full. Uh, yeah, find another okay. place. We're full. Why not the Inland Empire or Fresno or Bakersfield? Not not on the beach. Well, the uh, the, the local jurisdictions I just mentioned uh, have have their rules and policies. The state, the state of California, has has a whole set of different policies. None of which encourage, in any way, shape, or form, new housing or new business. They just don't want it. If you want to live in, in, in California, to build a house, buy a house, you're going to be saddled with, if you're a builder building a home, somewhere around 50 different kinds of regulations. And one okay. of the most popular ones people know about is something called the CEQA. It's an acronym for California Environmental Quality Act. The CEQA regulations will require almost any new project to, no matter no, no matter its size, to deal with dozens of state agencies and local uh, jurisdictions and cost anywhere from a half a million to a million dollars of studies just to work within the confines of CEQA. So the cost and the time frame of building uh, a new project is extensive and expensive. Okay, okay. And furthermore, if, if, if you're uh, uh, someone who's going to live in those other areas, you're going to want a job to live there. Right. So... Now you have now you have a business. How are they going to locate in those areas and employ you? What are their costs? California is not a, a state that has any interest or welcoming to business. Businesses are leaving California for the reasons I'm mentioning. If anyone wants to dispute my statement that California, uh, I might even go so far to, to say California might be some sort of a hate state for businesses. We talk about hate speech. Well, we, we, yeah. we can also hate businesses. We only have to look to uh, Governor Jerry Brown's most recent uh, appeal to Amazon to locate their business in California. Right. Everybody's wooing uh, Amazon to come to their town or community or state. Okay. Yeah, they, they employ a lot of people. Um, sure. We want them. Great business. Uh, all those kinds of things. When Governor Brown sent the letter to Amazon... He uh, he offered them some some amazing things. He offered them uh, some exemptions from California's sequel yeah. laws, which take forever. They're uncertain. He exempted them from from certain state taxes, from property yeah. taxes. He he wanted to exempt them from um, the list that he sent. I, 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 can I interrupt you? Yeah. Yes. I have it Please in front do. of me. Thanks to you sending oh. it to me ahead of time. I love this one strike team of state employees to help cut through the regulatory morass that routinely imposes years of delays on projects in California. So it's a strike team of state employees to help cut through the regulatory morass created by the state and its, <laughs> and its employees. We will help you navigate the swamp that we built, right? Yes. 
you you would you would read that a few times and you keep questioning what did he just say tells you a lot i mean this is a kind of confessional document isn't it certain of income tax credits to offstate offset the state's high tax rate so we're admitting that your point here about the CEQA, california environmental quality act uh grant the company an exemption from it uh state incentives to help the company buy zero emission shuttle buses uh, for its employees, um, property tax abatement, because I guess property tax is too high, research credits, and, of course, Hollywood, even film and TV production credits. And as, as you say, it's a laundry list of why businesses move from California. That that list of why you should come here is a list of here's how we'll help you get by or ignore or over, over by, bypass the things that we have in place. It's a, it's a confession. It, it is a confession, and it's, and it's a, here's how we can bypass this for you, the largest business in the United States. But what about small business? What about any other business? Yeah. What about yeah. anything like that? There, there, is a, there is a disregard. There's a disdain for something other than the big, the large, the, the, the dominant. Now, this, the other thing that uh, the governor Brown and and his attorney general uh, Xavier Becerra they they repeat over incessantly over and over again we want to preserve California values mm-hmm. this 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 euphemism for something they believe their values have nothing to do with jobs for middle class people they have nothing to do with small business we we only can know that by what they say. Not by not by an opinion. This, these yeah. are things they do and say. Yeah. All right. Let's let's go back to. I mean, it's interesting. While you were saying that, I was thinking it's sort of questioning my major premise, which is I'm in Iowa City and I get offered a job in Fresno. Chances are I don't get offered a job in Fresno, right? Because not as likely. Yeah, not okay. as likely. Okay. But let's go back to the coast and let's go back to these attractive places, San Francisco. Traditionally attractive places, um, uh, San Diego, etc. I I have been reading lately, as uh, everybody in the audience has been reading and seeing that these places are being despoiled. They're being really crudded up. Lots of homeless people. Uh, you know these these uh, you see these hazmat guys out there in their their suits. You know, like like walking in space. Picking up, I understand, needles, uh, human waste remains, uh, all sorts of stuff in what have traditionally been some of the garden spot cities and places of the world. San Francisco, for one, and now I understand even some in uh, in Orange County. What causes that? And talk to us, connect, connect it up with the question of uh, illegal immigration, if that's part of the reason and part of the cause. California has another interesting distinction. In the last 12 months, last one year, their attorney general has sued the federal government 32 times. Um, the attorney general of California, most people in the United States haven't heard heard of him, but his name is Xavier Becerra. It's a very significant post in California because people yeah. who are attorney general go on to be in the Senate, U.S. Senate, or they go to be governor. It's a stepping board for yeah. their future political career. Yeah. 
it does what you describe homelessness poverty housing those uh, those aren't as popular as the immigration uh, question that we hear about daily but the easiest way to see why these things are happening in california is to look exactly at who is who is the who's the public official in california that that uh, that acts on these these big issues uh, when acts on him, he sues, he, he, um, he litigates. And that's the attorney general. The attorney general is the one who is prosecuting the position of California against the federal government, against the current administration. We can see that by 32 lawsuits in 12 months. Yeah, pretty unprecedented. Yeah. What, what are those loss? What are those lawsuits about? What, what is the what is the uh, uh, attorney general Becerra? What, what, uh, what did he run on a year ago when he was he was an appointed position? Now he's running for reelection. So we get to hear yet again what attorney general Becerra wants to do for California. It's interesting. Uh, he, his position hasn't changed in the last year. It's really quite simple. Resist the federal government. Yeah. Resist it. He actually has a phrase resist and persist. Uh, what 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 is he resisting? The overreach, the constitutional overreach by the federal government in um, transgenders in the military, DACA, uh, women's right for birth control, um, uh, the uh, immigration right, immigrant rights, what, the rights for what to get driver's license to to, to, to be able to vote. Uh, things like that. And the headline, uh, right? The sanctuary cities thing, right? Sanctuary cities. Uh, the list of his, uh, you know, he wants, again, widespread uh, college financial aid. Uh, again, protect sanctuary cities. The, the the whole theme is to, to protect California values against federal government overreach. Yeah. Uh, what are two new policies he's implemented in, in 12 months? One of them is... Um, uh, the Bureau of Environmental Justice wants to protect the environment and also uh, worker participation or worker protection rights. What are those two things, worker protection rights? Uh, might have heard people in the United States might have heard this. If you're an employer uh, of workers in California and the federal government comes in and wants to get information on them, you are, by law, in California not allowed to provide any personal information, anything on that employer. Okay. Um, when the employers asked, how do we deal with the conflict between the state law and the federal government wanting information, Becerra said, Attorney General Becerra said, use your common sense. Okay, that's a great yeah. legal opinion. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the Bureau of Environmental, uh, some of the other uh, Bureau of Environmental Justice, I still haven't figured out what that is supposed to do. But right. This is the list of the priorities. It's an exclusive list of what their priorities. You notice uh, it's not housing, it's not jobs. It's, yeah. uh, um, and by the way, there's a few different ways where people come to move into a state. How, how does a state's population increase? There's three big ways: foreign immigration. Uh, emigration from other states or birth. Well, California's population is not increasing much by birth. It's not increasing much by people moving from other states. Like you know, we used to see in the uh, yeah. several decades ago. As a matter of fact, they're leaving the state. The population is only in California increasing significantly by foreign immigration. And, and a lot of that is illegal immigration. 
um, a lot of that is uh, um, not able to find out how much. We don't really have good ways of counting that. But yes, a lot of it that is. Most but we can see think, through the most state. Most you think? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. But we can see through the state attorney general what the state of California's priorities are and what they are not. So, um, if you're a uh, uh, if you're a, a middle class family, it is very clear that the priorities of the state are not your priorities. They just they, they, there's there's nothing that is describing how you're going to afford a house, afford energy costs, afford food costs, and get a good job that well, you can why, pay for that. Uh, the, uh, what's the engine here? Is part of this is still missing in my head? I'm, I'm still thinking about the guy who let's say does get offered a job in Fresno, one of the few, isn't building a house but is buying a house, and you know it's a family of four, and they make seventy five thousand. He's going to have a tough road to hoe. What made things so expensive? Policies that were policies that were not developed with this middle class family in mind. What were wh- who was in mind? Was this environmental craziness? Was this uh, union pressure? Paying for pensions? What what drove the situation to where we are today, which is making it so unfriendly to to the middle class? I said, was it the rich people? You said, no, it's not the rich people. It's the policy. So so what what are the policies that did in the middle class or doing in the middle class? in in uh, in california and i ask this because uh I, I have to be reminded from time to time where the american strategy group are concerned about the well-being and existence of the united states and it looks like california although looking good in some ways is is also looking it look looking like it's you know teetering and in, in, in big trouble you know how do we pr- keep this from occurring throughout the united states what is it that they've done that's wrong that uh, other states can learn from? Is it that long question? I'm sorry, Joel. Is it that list that uh, Governor Brown sent out to Amazon? You know, here, here's some of the stupid things we did. Um, and, and at whose behest and for whose benefit were all these things done, which have had this uh, noxious effect on uh, on the middle class? The, the direct, simple answer to the policies are really having to do with not wanting more people to move to this state. Okay, really? Truly? Truly. Once you are, the policies are are extensive, and it's not just a state policy. Um, uh, The state also uh, uh, foists upon uh, uh, environmental policies with the Clean Water Act or the uh, uh, EPA to preclude this, or cities, as I mentioned earlier, uh, pass uh, restrictions and regulations for new construction, new housing, new people. It, it's really as simple as more people coming into the state is not wanted. But, uh, the c- but, cities don't want more people moving into their city. But wait a minute. Um, but then why is it so lax when it comes to illegal immigration? That connection is still a mystery to me. So they don't want the middle-class family guy from Iowa, but it's okay to have with the caravan people because they're going to states going to offer resistance to the federal government. It is a mystery. Um, what I know, okay. what I can just what I can put my put my thumb on is really clear because these policies have been in place for for decades, and they've been getting worse and worse for decades. No more construction in my city. 
no more people moving here. No more. We don't want more density. We don't want, you know, we want historic preservation. We want to preserve the environment. Most people have heard all these things. They sound really good, but they're all a series of policies to restrict someone else moving in. No more traffic. I mean, we've got traffic. There are policies to restrict someone moving to their city. However, why do certain, why did San Francisco grow significantly over the last five to eight years? It's really more about what, the, as I refer to, the business of city government. If a city, city makes money by sales tax revenue predominantly. If, if a city has a bunch of people they have to feed, house, house clothe, and care for, that's an expense. But if they have businesses that are creating revenue, that's an, an income source. Yeah. So San Francisco, San Francisco, well, through Mayor Ed Lee, uh, who uh, he passed a uh, payroll tax exemption many years ago, seven, about eight years ago. Payroll tax exemption. Um, big technology businesses moved to San Francisco. Tax cut. Exemption means cut. You don't pay it. They moved there. Uh, people who uh, got employed there got didn't have to pay uh, city sales tax on their their stock bonuses on their on their on their on their, on their income. Big influx of businesses. A lot of technology. Okay. They didn't build any new housing in San Francisco. Not a not a not a stitch of new housing. Bunch of businesses. That's how the operations of a of a of a city in California work. They want. Uh, why do you why do you go to, in San Francisco and L.A. and you see all these car dealerships? Well, that's sales tax revenue. Um, that's right, how so they smart, work. smart. That's I just want to be sure I'm following you. Smart of Lee to do that and that bring in brought in business, but not smart to build more houses to not build more houses. Uh, well, he didn't want more houses. You okay. got you got to care for them. You got to you got to feed them. You okay. got to protect them. Police. Um, now it's interesting. This these. Uh, 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 Mayor Lee and the other mayors of the liberal cities will say tax cuts do not work. Well, that's not true. They they use them. They employ them all the time. They do work. Yeah. Uh, businesses go there. Um, but there's been a policy for 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 decades in, in California, both the state and the city, in from a municipal level, to preclude, restrict more people from coming unless it's the kind of businesses that they want. Now. Well, wait, 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 wait again. Are, are we done with illegal immigration? Because that's apparently not the kind of businesses they want. But that's what they're getting because they're not resisting, uh, use that word again, very hard, very much in this dramatic influx of people. The illegal immigration side of that, it's confusing. All right, it's a mystery. You said it. You're right, it's a mystery. From a policy standpoint, that makes no sense. That's all I'm trying to say, right? But from no a sense. threat to the sovereignty of the state or the United States government, it makes no sense policy-wise, economic-wise. It makes no sense. You hear um, uh, the, the economic benefit from uh, the, the immigrant illegal immigrant population. Well, that's not true in the state in, in the state of California. Uh, 55% of immigrants are on some sort of means-tested public yeah. assistance. Okay. Much okay. greater than the rest of the, okay. than the, than the citizen okay. population. It, 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 from a policy standpoint, it is absolutely a mystery. Uh, now, uh, it's not that much of a mystery, truly. It, it is, uh, when you look at, uh, I, I, think I, can, I, I think I can say, when you look at Xavier Becerra, the Attorney General's, uh, some of his major platforms, it is to expand voting rights of immigrants, immigrant voting rights. 
So from a from a public policy standpoint, we were talking about earlier the mystery. From a political standpoint, to create voters to support your elections, it's pretty straightforward. So, Bill, as we discussed, the seemingly incongruous connection between not allowing people to afford, move, live, work in California versus the extensive foreign immigration is really explained pretty simply. Uh, and, and it's explained by Attorney General Becerra, who stated a year ago when he was appointed, and he has reiterated while he's running again for re-election, uh, that his, one of his primary goals, primary platforms, is to expand, increase immigrant rights, including voting rights, uh, access to all public services. But it's really the public policy is, uh, is directly related to to voting rights more than anything, which is why foreign immigration has taken priority over immigrants from other states to California. People moving from other states to California are regulated and restricted and priced out of that opportunity. Foreign immigration, uh, while it is additional people, uh, is really the focus is voting. It's a public policy directive. It may not seem, may not seem logical to most, but that is the basis of the state of California today. Okay, policies being let, let's let's put a ribbon on it then. So, um, what's the lesson um, for other states? If you if you do this study of California, which you've done by living there and reading and paying attention, give us two three lessons that you know uh, they can be negative lessons you know uh cautionary tales things to do or not to do in the new state of Farcasiana. you know what 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 to do what not to do your state <laughs> one lesson you. only one lesson only whether we're talking about taxation immigration housing to have a healthy state, a healthy city, a healthy country. We need more participants. We need more taxpayers. We need more people with jobs. We need more people with families and, and, and supporting school, uh, local schools. We need more people. But when you have fewer people with jobs, they're, they're not paying taxes. When you have fewer people paying taxes who are only rich, that's not good. You want more yeah. other people, middle, middle income people. You want more customers. Yeah. You want more a more diverse group of people, more diverse group of people working, paying taxes, more of them. You don't want unemployment. Who in the world thinks it's a good idea to have fewer people working, fewer taxpayers, and increasing paying those, supporting those, helping those who are not working yeah. to, 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 to live. That, that's, an, that, that, that's just nonsensical. The, the be, one be, simple lesson. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go. One simple lesson. I can't interrupt. The that. one simple lesson is more taxpayers, more people working, more people owning a Got home, it. more people raising their family. It is that simple. All right. And instead, what you have is a kind of antipathy toward that potential taxpayer from Kansas and his family. That's seventy five thousand dollar a year and, and and more sympathy for the illegal uh, who comes in willy nilly because there's no stopping him unless the federal government does and uh, is likely to be dependent on welfare. Statistically. You, um, y- yes. And, okay. and, and this is not this is not some sort of right wing canard. Right. These are policies that are described on the stump in litigation by the governor and the state attorney general. 
of California. And, and if you want to continue, it's the same policies promoted by the by many of the municipal jurisdictions. Uh, we don't we, we don't care that you we do not care that you can't afford a house. We can't we don't care that you can't pay rent. And what what also happens is. The, the the family from uh, coming in from other states to work there, um, they're going to their quality of life, their expectations of a quality of life is dramatically different yeah. than a flock of other people coming in. And uh, uh, and and what what what's not quantified very well is the degradation of quality of life. We we can we can identify homelessness and poverty, but the degradation of quality of life is a little bit more too difficult. Yeah. But that's where the uh, the most recent uh, study came out and said California ranks 50th of 50 states in the United States. Got it. Thank you, Joel Farkas. <clears throat> Thank you, sir, very, very much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. All right, that was Joel Farkas. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. And that just about does it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And be sure to tell your family and friends and share it on your social media pages. Feel free to like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. You can also email me at BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com.